You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. You are tuned into episode 113. Let's wrap up this month with a guest, a true legend of the genre. My guest this week is... My name is DJ Newmark. Uh, some people call me Uncle New. I produced for Method Man, Aloe Black, Charles Bradley, Large Professor, and my group Jurassic Five. Back in school, used to play up all the boots. Sometimes you be my number five, sometimes you be my 22. But I'm screwed and I'm sick, cause little rhyme is true. I can't wait to say I do, and all your honey did some through. I got my chariot rolling, now I'm my control. Got some spunk in my bunk, I can't wait to put some soul in We're rolling all strikes, we're having little tights One is little Mike, the other's like I'm sure that you would like to hold them Or maybe stroll them on their little bikes when they're born I'm sworn to bring them up right to know Dope is how I breed them, beats is what I'll feed them They'll be healthy like a health nut, I'm sure you shake your butt And I won't disperse, here's my life rhyme I'll end up for better or for worse Considered one of the most creative on the scene, constantly raising the bar of mundane DJ sets. From deploying children's toys to rocking the largest turntable to ever exist, being original in the cookie-cutter world of DJs has never been an issue. That being said, I talk about the J5 days, labels, movie scoring, potential partnerships with Newmark DJ products, collaborations with Kanye to Durf Recklaw, Incubus, and more. And as he approaches the age of 50, he has lived a life most don't ever get to see, even if you live to be a thousand. So I try my best to bring a conversation of the ages with no stone left uncovered in the time allotted. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I've interviewed everyone from Prince Paul to Marco Polo, members of Slum Village, The Roots, Company Flow, and Cunning Linguists, to OGs like Steve Arrington of the band Slave, and everyone in between. Lots of past episodes to dig through if you want to. This podcast is available wherever fine podcasts can be found, or you can visit the website at bedroombeethovens.com. There you can contact me directly, send in some music for the show, or just say hello. Lastly, the Patreon is the easiest, fastest way to support your boy at patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens, where I am trying my best to keep the show ad-free and show love back. But if you love this podcast even a teensy bit and you have a dollar to spare, it's a good way to help out this creative during these crazy times. As we look ahead for 2021, DJ Newmark has some new projects ahead and old ones you can scoop up on his band camp. As always, shout out to J57 and the 5-7 Collective for not only showing love and support, but checking in and making sure I have everything I need to keep on trucking. Episode 113 with Uncle New. Let's start the show. Uncle New. Yeah, so I have a I have a confession to make. Booking this interview at this time 
was a test. We were meeting in the morning because I wanted to see if the pandemic really turned Uncle New into a morning person. I wanted to see if the rumors were true. Yeah, man, it's kind of upsetting to me, man, because I I was waking up early before the pandemic and going to the gym every single day. Like I didn't miss a day and I was like at the best shape of my life. And uh, I was thinking more positive. I was feeling incredible and just had a lot of energy and everything. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, well, you know, in my mind, I was just like, well, I'll just work out at home and, you know, do my normal regiment here at home. And I just couldn't find the motivation. It's crazy how leaving your space is like so important for something like that. Well, I guess it was important for me. I'm now back to my morning regiment. Now I'm just making myself work out and do my thing here at the at the house and working out in the studio. But <laughs> It's not the same, but uh, yeah, I have become a morning person even more now because of the pandemic. And it's, I feel like, I don't know if it's just me tripping, but I feel like a lot of people have gotten a little bit of a rest and a break, but I've, I've worked overtime. I'm just fearful that once things open, that I'm going to be exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that's about. Maybe I just need to just cool out for a minute. What about the, what about the mental health side of things? Because I, I remember at the start of this pandemic, you dropped your very first drum pack, Crate yeah. Expectations Volume 1. And that could have been a good thing or a bad thing, depending on people's buying habits. But- it was, yeah, it was like the best thing I could have ever di- did, man. I, I don't know, man. I had an angel on my shoulder on that one because I had been working on six packs and kind of turned them in or put them to rest, I should say, uh, before I went on a little vacation to Tulum, came back, pandemic hit, and I'm like, well, I'm sitting on these six packs and I just, started to drip feed those over the um, time of the pandemic. And yeah, that was, it, and I actually doubled down and started making, um, I made another pack with Ableton Live called Creme de la Crate. And then I'm in collaboration with a startup company called Sing, which uh, Sing basically is a, a app that lets you copyright your music right when you press a button. <laughs> so if you're sharing with someone or you're sharing like a really big artist and you're like, oh, I don't have a, you know, a, a connection with them, you can copyright it right when you email it to them they i'm doing a pack with them and then i'm doing another pack with um ski beats so yeah the packs have saved my butt i mean that's been the biggest pivot of uh of the pandemic for me you know 25 years ago on the wake-up show with sway and king tech it was 1996 it was jurassic five yourself and cut chemist look i was 11 years old now i'm 36 and I have a chance to present a piece of commentary with you. So your work is, it, it's it's officially generational, you know? Wow, man. 36. What I would do to be 36 again. <laughs> well, 36 during a pandemic. Yeah. So it's not like I'm <laughs> grabbing life by the horns over here. Oh, nah, man. Don't knock it. That 36 is a good year. I remember 36. <laughs> <laughs> well, even, even with all those years under your belt, it still took you in your career about 20 years or so to release your debut album. So you strike me as a guy who isn't mm. self-serving. You want to give yourself your gift, your sound to groups, shows, festivals, and mixes. And then you finally decided in the early 2010s that the world was kind of ready for you. And it's a funny, it's funny when you put it like that, man, like, uh, it's interesting. I've never thought of it like that. That's it. That, I mean, I've thought of it, but not in such a clear context. The way you put it is so ironed out. You know, it's a funny thing, man, because like while in the group prepping for the next album after coming off of, oh God, I don't know how many months of touring, we would tour like a rock band, you know, go three months at one time or two months at one time and then come home for a week or two and then go back out. 
the criticisms that I would get, you know, from the group was like, you know, you're not you're not making more music for the group. You're not doing more for the group. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, everybody in, in the crew is like, I mean, they're all like super cool and everything. But like, if it were, if it were one criticism is is I wasn't making enough beats for the group or paying enough attention to the group. So uh, I always felt the opposite of what you said. So it's interesting, man. It really wasn't until 2004 when I did Blend Crafters that I stepped out and did um, a side project, like like where I really kind of said, hey, this is going to come out. This is my production. If the question is, why did I feel like I was ready then in 20, what is it, 2012? Is that when I released that shit? Almost yeah. a decade, yeah. Yeah, I had things to express. I, I And I, I really work from that energy field in pretty much everything I do in life. If I have something ex- to express, I'll do it. And if I don't, I'll pivot and I'll make a drum pack or like right now, currently I was finding, I don't really believe in writer's block, but I was finding myself in a space where I felt kind of tight in the studio. That's like the only way I can explain it. Like I felt, you know, like when you just have a feeling in your chest, like there's something wrong, but you just can't get down to the root of what, what, what it is. And it was just the pandemic and it was just the mayhem and street violence and um, injustice um, towards, you know, my African-American brothers and sisters. It was just a lot. It was doing my part. I put out my BLM mix and just, you know, did my part and donated. And it, it, it wasn't enough. I was having this feeling in my chest the entire time. And it just, and I never felt like I was helping enough or doing enough, or uh, I never felt safe or solid in this climate. I also felt like the United States was being held together with duct tape and Gorilla Glue, everything, all the cracks started showing. And so I, one of my other pivots was, well, I, I'm going to pretend like I still don't believe in writer's block. And so I just started doing covers. Uh, you know, I was watching this Bernard Purdy videotape, you know, years ago. And he always had this thing, you know, like, if you're not inspired, just do rudiments. You know, it's simple patterns, you know. So if you're a DJ, you do, do a baby scratch for a little while until something fun comes out of it. Or, you know, if you're a drummer, you just do a little pop, 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 simple stuff, you know. And so I I wanted to apply that to production. And so I have a, you know, a covers record getting ready to come out in a, in a June. And so that helped me get creative again. That was, sorry, I took the scenic route to that question. But, <laughs> hey, uh, the, the part, in the podcast business, taking the scenic route, that's the best. <laughs> that's, the best that's, the, that's, the, that's the route, huh? <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, and, and that's kind of helped me get back on my feet and it helped me with my work with Tom and Jerry, which I just which just came out like a week ago. So yeah, doing music production for, you know, a motion picture of, of that magnitude, you, you, you got to be on your A game. And so the covers record really kind of rejogged my memory on how fun production is, even in a really tense time. And I, I also want to tip my, my hat off to you because just when the production's done and you release a project, if I can use your your debut album as an example as well, you covered all the bases. When that album came out, you approached it like, oh, you know what? Here are 10-inch singles. Here's three CDs. Here's a DVD. 
Here's even a USB. So you got new technology, old technology. You had old tech that was making a comeback because nobody in 2012 was releasing vinyl. The resurgence didn't really hit at that time. So you're taking risks. Yeah, 2012 was actually a really rough year for vinyl. I mean, I was hearing that from my peers at the time. And um, looking back, I probably shouldn't have done that many uh, 10-inch records. 10-inch is a very hard format to a place in record stores and b um record not a whole lot of record plants do them very well so i was getting all kinds of crackling and problems with the records that slowed my roll back then but uh yeah it's another story well what about i mean if we're talking about risks what about uh your branding because i I think your logo is quite clever but i know pharrell gets a lot of crap over the star trek logo but the beat junkies never get crap for using the green lantern logo yeah, so I mean, for those that don't know, your logo is the United Way logo flipped to look like a record. Yeah. Did you ever get any legal pushback on that? No, because with logos, you have to change – well, with art, you have to change it by 10%, and mine's changed definitely by 10%. The The hand part or the hand that turns into the groove part is is changed. The dot in the middle changes. The width of it, the, the shaping of it is, is changed. So I've changed it more than 10%, so I've been okay there. And I flipped it upside down, so there's that. <laughs> I read ridiculous stories like Will I Am took Pharrell to court over his use of, wait for it, the phrase I am. And I feel like when you reach a certain level of mainstream success, it starts to get pretty ridiculous on what you can get a subpoena for. Really? I hadn't heard that story, man. Um, that's a weird one. That's a, that's a weird one. And, and yeah. And I, I think, you know, because when people hear your name, they might think hip hop strictly, but they forget that you opened Fiona Apple and you were on Warped Tour and you're a lot bigger than that. Yeah, I've done some really strange things, man. It's it's uh, it's strange in a good way. I mean, you know, and when I think about when I was young and I liked all the strange music, like I, I always say how blessed I feel to, to grow up in the 80s, you know, born in 1971. I I had such an appreciation for funk and soul and rock and jazz and blues, you know, passed down from my father. But growing up when, you know, hip hop was just <laughs> really just starting to flourish and having an appreciation for the weird ass new wave music, you know, like new wave was really weird. And I really liked it. Like I like groups like Devo, Devo and flock of seagulls and all that weird shit. Like I was into that shit because it had really good melody, but it was weird, but also never underestimate the power of being in the right place at the right time. A lot of those collaborations happened because I think you were, uh, recording quality control and John Bryan, and Fiona Apple are down the hall mixing When the Pawn. Dude, and then down the hall from there, Incubus was, they were making Make Yourself. Dude, the, the, the timing thing, uh, timing, you know, when they, when you hear the phrase timing is everything, man, that, that phrase right there is getting very real. Like, I, I've always paid attention to it, but man, timing is so essential. And, and capitalizing on an idea right when you have it is paramount. It really is paramount because I would have never met J5 unless I was in the right place at the right time, you know, I, I honestly, because I was doing house parties in L.A. and prided myself on moving a crowd in, in somebody's living room, you know, or someone's backyard or, you know, open banquet hall or whatever the hell I was doing at that time with my, you know, with my speakers and my setup or whatever. And it wasn't until I got asked to DJ this night you know, where it was like a live band on stage and they, they needed a DJ for the night that I met J5. And like, you know, I got very lucky, uh, very fortunate that I met them at the at the rehearsal studio, at a rehearsal studio for that night. And so 
timing is really incredible, man. And it's funny, man, because like the word fresh is still the best hip hop vocabulary, vocabulary slang till today, because I can't tell you how many things I've sat on, like how many beats I've sat on, how many songs I sat on. And then I waited too long and I go to play them again. I'm like, man, they don't sound right. They go stale, you know? So like putting things out when you have them is just so crucial. You know, the timing of it is so it it sounds fresh. It feels fresh. You feel better about it. And then, so you, you mentioned you're doing Tom and Jerry scores, which congratulations had a pretty good opening weekend, despite what's going on. You know, I, it broke double digits. Man, I, I've, I've read nothing but good things about it. Um, I didn't actually score it, um, although that is the goal for the future um, as, I, as I continue to work as a producer. But I worked under an incredibly talented uh, scoring musician, producer, a virtuoso, uh, Christopher Lennertz. And he brought me in to do um, additional production, and they gave me a score credit, additional score credit, I think it was called. But yeah, I was working underneath him and just uh, punched up all his cues and helped out as much as I could. And um, yeah, it was it was an honor to work with this same team. I think this is the third time we've worked together. <clears throat> I did Ride Along 1 and Ride Along 2 with, yeah, that's what it, with Ice Cube and Kevin Hart um, doing the production for those movies. So John Bryan was with Fiona Apple down the hall. He comes into your session, listens to the influence. He just finished scoring Magnolia with Tom Cruise. And you didn't know it at the time, but a year later, he was going to score Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So knowing that you're ramping up your film scoring resume, that that wouldn't have been a bad business card to have gotten at the time. Man, I should have stayed closer to John Bryan. I remember him. I remember when he walked into that session. That's Man, you're doing your homework, bro. Wow. Uh, He walked into that session and we were mixing the influence and it was just the instrumental and he was just flipping the fuck out. (laughs) I should have been like, Hey John, let's partner up. (laughs) Shit. What was I thinking? Um, nice guy. You guys did work on a project though. Uh, around that same time, you guys did work on a project together. Are you aware of that? Um, let's see. What did we work on? No, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of it. Was it? Um, See, now I'm, I'm really going to blow your mind with my research. Was it, was it South Park? <laughs> no. So you both worked on Dave Navarro's album "Trust No One." Oh yeah, Dave Navarro's album, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, you're really digging, bro. Um, he did something called a ring modulator guitar and the slide bass, and you did drum programming. Yeah, I did. I did my drum programming. Yeah, that was all thanks to the engineer that that um, mixed. Uh, quality control record rich costi who was really close with john and um yeah i was fortunate enough to be there you know um right place right time right Shit. how about you and i start a podcast called six degrees of separation huh Ooh. Oh, don't. well I, I can do a whole podcast just on my interaction with kanye west alone so like yeah i mean that that would be like is <laughs> that'd be like suitable for that podcast <laughs> i was responsible for putting Kanye West out on a record before anybody else, to my knowledge. Um, so in 1996, I was working as, um, I was working as everything pretty much at this small, um, record label called correct records on the West coast. And I was doing a and R college promo and everything else around there, cleaning up, throwing out the trash, you, you name it. I was doing whatever it is I could to get this record label off the ground. And I signed an artist out of Chicago by the name of Grav. 
short for gravity. Really, really nice guy. What a good dude. And he turned in a demo that I really liked. And we're like, cool, let's do it. And so he started making an album. And he sent me, I think it was one or two tracks produced by Kanye. And I was like, man, you know, do more with him. And, you know, it, it, you know, we got an album. Let's let's do it. So he ended up doing half of the album with Kanye. So Kanye produced half of his album. And to date, that is Kanye's first production put out. And I wanted to sign Kanye, and then the label disbanded. But um, so I was like, wow, that was close. Rockefeller, Dame Dash, you know, and uh, that's where Kanye needed to be, you know, for the record. You know, he needed to be on a big platform. He he was always very, very energetic. Uh, he always spoke his mind when we were recording. The, I was with Grav and Kanye when they recorded that album in um, in Corona in New York, <laughs> and uh, I have on my wall right now a like he did a perfect sketch of my face with pencil. Wow. And I was like, wow, you know, this might be worth something one day, you know. And he even even wrote Kanye West on it in 1996 uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the drawing. Um, and I was like, man, maybe this could be an NFT. <laughs> Shit. I'm sort of trying to think like NFTs now. Like everything is just like changed so quickly. But um, yeah, that's my story with, with Kanye West. Wow. So stories like that and... Tying back to what I just said, you know, that, that Dave Navarro album spent 12 weeks on the Billboard charts. That Incubus album went multi-platinum. Do you get compensated as such? Or is this a scenario where DJ Kilmore grabs you on your lunch break because you're down the hall? You contribute to an album where they reap all the financial success for? Because <sighs> I got to say, I'm only human. And if I kept contributing to albums that made other artists drive in Lambos and live in mansions, I might start to get jaded. I'd have to find fulfillment in other areas. Bro, I don't. It's it's a painful story. I I remember. <laughs> okay, so this comes into a, this this turns into a bigger conversation, like most of my life. But uh, I remember it was very much a lunch break thing. We were like, yeah, no problem, let's do it. And then I remember talking to my attorney, or Cut and I talking to our our attorney for J Five, and we were like, doesn't scratch versus constitute as publishing and our attorney was like no no that's that doesn't constitute as as musical constitute as musical writing i'm like nah that's bullshit i'm like we're doing we're doing full verses with cuts there's no other instruments and we're not using pre-copyrighted material to do our cuts and scratches over these verses there's no samples this is all i'm like this is a tone i'm like this is rhythmic 
this is melodic. That all constitutes writing. I was I was throwing everything at it, and she was like, they're not going to budge. They don't want to give up any points, any percentage of the publishing, nothing. And so there's your answer. So to date, I got a plaque. That's what I got. But I love that band dearly. But, you know, I remember at least fighting for it. I remember saying, cut, yo, we should really fight for this. You know, this is like, this is a big band. I mean, they're going to, they're going to do, they're not a big, I, they weren't big at the time. I said, this, this can go somewhere. And I just felt it. Um, the Persian in me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, no, but I tried and I just, it didn't get anywhere, man. I feel like life is abundant, you know, and there's just, there's so many ways to get, you know, money, fame, love, food, whatever, whatever it is you're really after, you know, there's a lot of ways to go about it if you're living here in America, especially, and if you're living in Los Angeles for real. So like I, you know, I have two arms, two legs, you know, I had an immigrant mother who busted her ass to come out here from Iran when she was 15. So I got no excuses, you know, like crying over, you know, some publishing money that, you know, it's, it's, it's just so minute and life is so giving and abundant. And, you know, it's just, there's so much, you know, I just, you know, watching my mother struggle, I was, man, I, I try not to complain about anything if I don't have to, unless it re- shit really hits the fan. Like, it's been, you know, a few times where it has, but I try to keep it all in perspective. Man. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, you want to know how petty I would be? You know, like, if Dave Chappelle told me he was a big fan of J5 and the Chappelle show is off the ground, I'd be waiting on the phone every week to get an invite on his show. And if I didn't, man, yeah. I would have been like, ah, you know? Man, I've been I've been dying to see Chappelle in person again to thank him, man. We had, um, J5 got nominated for, I think it was Best New best new group of the year and MTV awards or best new video. No, it wasn't video best new single or best new group of the year for MTV award. And, um, I remember one of the, one of the members of my group really thought we were going to, we were going to get it. We were going to win it. And I was just like, Oh, I'm at, I was just like in the mindset of I'm at an award show. I had never been at no damn award show, nor do I really care. I'd rather be at home, you know, making beats or digging for records or something. I didn't, I didn't really, I just wasn't into it that much. I mean, it was cool, but I just wasn't that into it. And so when we lost to, um, I think they were a punk group. I forgot the name, Mud something. I forgot. Oh, Mudvayne. Was it Mudvayne? Yeah, Mudvayne. Yeah. So I guess they've been, they were kicking ass and taking names. So congrats to those dudes. Um, So when we lost and we were walking out of, uh, of the theater, like once the, you know, everything ended, Dave Chappelle walks up to me, like not, to the rappers not to cut not to I mean, just walks up to me i guess i guess i was the last i was the last person walk, walking behind them or something i don't know i'm not sure why he walked up to me but i loved it and i was like oh shit that's a dude from half baked that's crazy and and uh he's like hey man i just want to let you know I, I love your music don't feel bad about about not getting the award or something like that something to that effect and i was like oh man that's you know i and i wasn't really impacted at all by it but i just thought it was a <laughs> I thought it was a really sweet gesture, you know, like, but I, if he would have said it to the guy in the group that was really upset, then (laughs) he could have gone further. But I just, I'll I'll never forget that. I'm like, wow, the dude from Half-Baked just walked up to me and I love that fucking movie, you know? 
I didn't really even know his name very well. Like I didn't, I wasn't hip hip to like, you know, and then he just, you know, absolutely annihilated the industry and just, I was like, Oh, I'm so proud of this dude. I was like, yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah. I was, you know, I was like, man, I would love to have seen, you know, new Mark on Chappelle show or even the block party or something. Oh man. Yeah. I would have loved to do that. I would have, I would have had a lot to express. <laughs> now you, you said earlier in this interview, you know, J five said maybe your production wasn't, coming along as fast as they liked and then they brought in for i think it was just one track they brought in someone like scott storch and i think yeah i think he was on that album so reaching out to outside producers they thought would move the project along you felt it was unnecessary at the time because you had you had seven tracks on that album and you have control of those seven tracks so like you know what if what if eric sermon gave Nas one of his throwaway beats and it ended up on illmatic you know, what if Scott Storch gave a C beat to J5 and it ruined the flow of the album that you were trying to create? You know, if you take a table and you take a leg out, you're going to get a wobbly table. And I think when Cut left the group, that's what happened to the J5 table, you know, in my humble opinion. Um, and I'm sure if you talk to the other members of the group, you're going to get six other different opinions, right? So I was okay, you know, with getting outside producers since Cut left, but I felt like at the time that, um, well, A, I said, well, I'm just going to give you my best shit that I have. That's the that's first and foremost, right? And B, um, if we're going to get outside producers, it just has to fit the mold. And it has to like, you know, let's make sure we're getting dope shit. And I personally wasn't into what we got from from Scott because it it, it just wasn't. I felt like we could have sat with him and he could have did like what he's doing in a lot of these videos you're seeing on Instagram where he's sitting with the producers producers, and he's keying out the melodies, right? Um, he played us some shit that he did for um, a few other artists that was just uh, Lil' Kim shit. Um, put your lighters up, put your lighter up or whatever that, that single was. And in the studio, and we're like, yeah, what's up? Where, where are those beats? Or that's what I was saying. <laughs> Picking good beats is an art form, man, you know? You got to really meditate on that shit. Sometimes beats do this hypnotic thing where they knock so fucking hard, but they're not moving your soul. If that makes sense? Like they have a good knock to them, but they're not moving you emotionally in some way. And I was kind of getting that from not just that session, but a few other sessions. Now, all that said, Scott is probably top three, my favorite producer of all time. Like he's absolutely fucking stellar i would fucking leap at a chance to work with him but i don't think it was the fit for j5 i'm trying to think of all the other outside production oh um bean one did um you got to understand that connected okay so uh that's an outside producer that really connected in my opinion that was very j5 and i think they did their thing on it you know we tracked that here at my studio the vocals anyway i think with salam remy scott and maybe one more or that could have been it i think there was one there's been one and there might be one yeah. more, but I, I'm, I might be drawing a blank. But um, at any rate, it's, it's very personal, man. It's a delicate process, you know, like writing to beats, picking the right beats. But more than any of that, man, just making the right song. I've heard songs. I've heard beats with four sounds, three sounds in them that just skyrocket, you know, because there's so much room for the vocalist to do gymnastics or or do a great melodic hook or whatever it might be but um i don't know it just didn't connect for me personally and i i i feel like the same thing happened with 
our listeners, you know, our fans, whatever you want to call people who buy J5 Records or bought J5 Records. That said, something funny happened to me because I felt like, you know, after that happened, the group disbanded and then, you know, that was our last album. I was like, yeah, damn, damn, that was our last album. I kind of, I don't feel fulfilled, you know, not, not with that record. Power in Numbers was my shit. You know, that was the one I, I really felt it. To back to the, that last record, to feedback. I remember I had a meeting over at Pandora, and uh, <laughs> I was sitting with uh, one of the higher ups, and they were showing me the schematics on, like, you know, how many uh, J Five songs were streamed and all that. And I'm like, wow, this is really impressive. I, it's too bad I don't get paid for any of this shit. Like, you know, I mean, streaming is just a joke. Um, as far as what artists get paid, but you know, whatever it is, what it is. But, uh, he goes, do you know what the number one, uh, song that has been streamed by J five is? And I, I said, uh, what's golden. He goes, Nope. You know, concrete schoolyard. It's gotta be. Nope. So I named like two others and I, he kept saying, no, I'm like, what the fuck song are people streaming from J five? And, and like, I, he goes, are you sure you don't want to do another guess? I'm like, dude, I'm like six or seven guesses in and I'm fucking coming up roses over here. Like, and he goes, Canto de Asana. And so Canto de Asana was my cover. I love doing covers. And I guess we started the interview with covers. We're going to get end with them. God damn it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my cover of a very famous, well, not very famous, but a, a known Brazilian joint that I did as my dj song at the end of our last album at the end of the feedback album which nobody talks about but all the djs talk to me about like the average person doesn't tell me talk to me about it but the djs go yo that joint what is the name of that you know so i guess it was getting burned on both on the hip-hop side of pandora as well as the latin and brazilian and <laughs> you know uh genres on their platform so i was like whoa Maybe I don't feel so bad about the feedback album. So, you know, that changed my life. That was like six or seven years ago I had that meeting and I was like, it, it changed my my uh, perspective on that album. So I feel good about that album again. And I really liked uh, what I did for Red Hot as well. So, um, and, and yeah, I, I listened to the production on that album. I'm like, all right, I did the best I could. It is what it is, you know. <laughs> yeah, because you have to kind of, crawl on your hands and knees through shit Shawshank Redemption style before labels pay attention. Once you sell 100,000 independently, you almost want to tell Interstote to kind of like, hey, kiss my butt. At that point, I almost don't need you, right? Well, <laughs> that period of time was the period of time where it was the the don't sell out, keep it real era, right? It was a very big thing. It was a very proud time in hip hop. I guess that's the way I would, you know, title it. It was everybody was proud. The idea back then when we were going into the our very first single was, look, you know, let's let's do something similar to like how Fondalum is doing, you know, independent white labels or let's do our version of the white label on, on the West on the West Coast and, and give it our best swing. 
And so by the time we caught a lot of notoriety and we had, I think, four or five different major labels courting us, I remember saying to the group, let's not sign, let's start our own label and continue to do independent music. And I got pushback from the group, um, particularly particularly from Soup. And he's like, man, we need a fucking video. We need, we need more marketing dollars. We need to get heard by more people. And I scoffed at it at the time, but I ultimately got outvoted. We signed with Interscope because they were the only record label that was putting in paper what they said in the meetings at dinner, you know? So they would promise things at dinner, you know, a lot of these labels, and then they it, you get the contract, and like, that's not what we discussed. So we didn't even bother countering any of those labels that said one thing and did another. Interscope walked the walk, and so we signed with them, and I thanked Soup. I thanked Soup recently. He had a session over at my house like two months ago, and I thanked him recently. I'm like, man, I'm glad we signed because – if we hadn't, who knows how obscure we would have stayed. I think it was the right move for J5 because that's, you know, you got to think to do a, a, a music video back then, it was like 200 grand. <laughs> you were being called the world's leading innovator of DJ solutions. Uh, you're talking about the company, Newmark? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've given some thought to that where there could be some overlap to where you can get some compensation or maybe they can change their name or I was approached. I've been trying to work with Newmark at, in some sort of, um, <laughs> I really should change my name to uncle new and just call it a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, really, I don't know why I'm fighting this. I'm just dragging my feet in the mud. I named myself Newmark when I was doing house parties in the early eighties, mid eighties, mid eighties. I was DJing and I was telling my, my, my boy, Amani, AKA, Burt Blackerack, I said, man, I need a name. I don't have a DJ name. And he goes, ah, it's probably right underneath your nose. You're just not thinking of it, man. And I looked down and I was on a new Mark mixer and my name is Mark. It's literally that simple. So it's one of those cheeky, as they say in the UK, one of those cheeky things, you know, like where just uh, like, okay, yeah, I'll just call myself new Mark. It's fine. As years progressed and I guess some of my releases got more known with the group and on the side. I, I got approached from Newmark. Um, we had a, a, a breakfast at this diner down the street from my house. Uh, I'll never forget. And they're like, so what do you think, you know, what do you think's coming up? What do you, what do you think we should make? You know? And, and I was like, you guys should make portable turntables. Like this was the height of digging and record collecting and going to flea markets and finding 45s and record digging was, you know, was the way to make, beats back then you know and so they're like ah, i don't know you know we're not sure if we want to go that way and then they gave me this needle that had like a flashlight on the tip of it i'm like that's a fucking dope idea they're like maybe we can like collaborate on this and i'm like that's dope yeah let's try it so i remember doing a photo shoot with them and um, I put the needle on the record. I'm like, wow, this shit like illuminates the groove that I'm trying to find on the vinyl. Like I can go right to that part of the song. No problem. I can needle drop if I wanted. But then I started using the needle and the needle was just really non-functional. It skipped a lot. It just, it didn't hold the weight that, you know, Ashore did at the time or even the, the other, uh, autophons and all those other, other needles, needles that were competitive in the scratching and, vinyl manipulation market right so i passed on that 
you know, so that didn't happen. And then I think like a year or two later, they came out with a portable turntable. I'm like, well, damn, I thought they didn't want to do one because I was I was really wanting to pitch them like, yo, let's do a portable turntable together because that would have been a great fit for them and me. Like people would have known, oh, news a digger, you know, and they're a known DJ company. This is a good collaboration. But then they came out with that their portable mixer, but it was so big. It was like, I'm like, why would you make such a big portable mixer? Make it portable. Like it has to fit in my day bag or a suitcase when I go to Europe or whatever. Like, but they did good with it. Like they killed it. And actually like, um, that's that company's like, uh, uh, um, claim to fame. They put out something. They're usually first to market. Uh, they promote to like a 13 year old kid that just wants to learn how to DJ. So they figured it out. They're a good group of guys. Um, they've always been cool with me and vice versa so yeah shit that's i i guess I'm, they might have been already in production with another crew of people i don't know i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to claim that they stole it i just know that it came out about a year after we had that talk i'm like damn man we could have did something so ill like i have so many ideas for a portable turntable that would have crushed but uh they did go with it so you know they got great marketing all right well let's talk about your ventures uh, and i want to give you the floor to tell people about your 2021 plans and what they can look forward to be on the lookout for a sample pack uh for the producers out there be on the lookout for a sample pack called crate awakening all my um sample packs start with the word crate because that's kind of where i came came from but it'd be royalty free it doesn't come from uh, music that's already been pre-existing or copywritten so Crate Awakening will be coming shortly, uh, and it'll hopefully be on sounds.com, um, like my previous uh, sample packs, Creme de la Crate and Crate Expectations. So Crate Awakening, and then after that, I hope if all goes well and pressing goes right, that my album Run for Cover will come out, and that's an all-covers project uh, that'll be uh, on um, seven inch vinyl, the full length will be on twelve inch vinyl, and of course it'll be digitally and on the streaming platforms. Um, yeah, that's that's what I have planned for this year. Tom and Jerry's out now. For all you people that are have the kitties at home and you're trying to entertain them and going crazy during the pandemic, go check out some Tom and Jerry. They kept up with their slapstick antics from the OGs, which I really appreciated, and. Um, yeah, man, that's what I got going on this year. I'm turning 50 in June, so I'm going to celebrate being 50 and putting out Run for Cover all at the same time. If I could be so bold, my personal recommendation for anyone listening is to go to Bandcamp and you can buy all 10 of your mixes for the price of a new video game. Uh, I think 60 bucks gets you everything from Dilla Tribute to New Crack City, Wonder Wheel, and more. So I think that's a good starting point, yeah. and you get nine, ten hours worth of music. Yeah, I knew I was forgetting something. Thank I got you, you covered, man. man. Uh, come and uh, check out my bundles i have bundles of mixes or individual projects or if you're interested in my past discography come pay me a visit and i have the honor of doing one of the last interviews before you turn the big 5-0 so that's special for me and i wish you nothing but well wishes and success my friend uh you as well man stay healthy and sane during this pandemic <laughs>